Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 once again. And uh, as you do, uh, earlier in the service during announcements time, uh, Bruce and Amy were not here, but they just snuck in, the Alverds. This is also their last Sunday for a while, um, but we look forward to your return. It's been such a joy to have you here during much of your furlough at Steadfast, and we love you guys. And uh, you remember they sh- uh, shared uh, about uh, earlier this month, uh, took the whole time and shared about Ukraine. They're going back to a war zone to minister to people in the name of Christ. So they leave later next month. This will be the last time here for a while. Um, they didn't have prayer cards with them, I think, last time they were here. I'm going to hand these out. If you didn't get one and want one, they're in the, they're in the back. Go talk to the Alverts afterwards. So there you go. We'll just hand those out. Well, we are, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The title of this morning's message is Love is Patient. I debated on whether or not to begin verses 4 through 7 and these 15 qualities of love uh, this morning uh, because we are taking a break until August. And I thought, how can I begin and then stop and then we'll pick it up a month later? But since the first one is actually love is patient, I thought, well, I mean, if anybody really, <laughs> really, you know, is disappointed, they can apply the sermon. Um, so that's what we're looking at. I just want to look at this first characteristic, this first practice of love. I'm going to go ahead and read from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 4 through 7, though. Familiar passage. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 says this, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And verse 8 says, love never fails. Well, the section that we're in in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14, is a, is a unified subject here, and it has um, really a focus on the spiritual gifts because they were a problem in the church because people were seeking after certain ones, prizing some or the other. They were being selfish. They were abusing one another, not loving one another as they should. And so we have this beautiful passage, this really just uh, a beautiful picture of beauty in the midst of a really kind of a terrible situation in the church where we have these verses on love and what true love is. As is today, there was a lot of confusion in the first century about what love is and what it should have been. Um, We think about the world today and uh, people think that love is basically just some sort of feeling that you have that comes and goes George Lucas once said to Steven Spielberg, if, if the man and woman walk off into the sunset hand in hand in the last reel, it adds $10 million to the box office. So this is what our society wants to see. This is what they want to believe. They, they want to possess a feeling of love. And that's nothing new. In the, in the second or third century, um, third century, Augustine uh, put it this way, speaking about his life before he came to Christ. He said, I was in love with love. And he had this idea of it was the feeling of love that he was after. And it was a self-centered feeling that he wanted. 
Um, it's, it's different from biblical love, from the kind of love that God expects of us and the type of love that is agape love that should be in the church, that should exist. Um, so we, we remember that Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so Paul, teaching them the more excellent way, in this section of his epistle to the church in Corinth, starts to talk to them about love, and he doesn't describe it with adjectives. Every one of these 15 characteristics is a verb. It's an action. So these are practices of love, 15 practices of love. And though, though when we come back in August, we might carry, uh, take on more than one or two this morning, I, 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 was just, I was really just thinking this week about love is patient. And there's a, there's a word here uh, for patience. The word is macrothumia. Uh, and uh, thumia, we get this word, it's a Greek word, we get the word thermos from it, or thermostat. Um, and it means to boil up under. And so uh, if you think about like uh, a thermostat on a, on a car, it regulates the coolant coming from the radiator to cool down the engine. And if your thermostat is broken or faulty, you know it because that that car stops, the engine looks like it explodes, and there's steam coming up, and you've seen people on the side of the road with their hood up. Maybe you've been that person. Oftentimes, it is because the thermostat is not regulating things properly. And this word means long-suffering or long-tempered because macro means long, thumia means that bubbling up that kind of it's going to you know it's a long time before your temper blows up that's the idea of this word from it, the actual word itself as we begin i wanted to open it up and ask you guys uh what are some things what are some where where does that happen for you where do you lose your patience yes the computer, all right? Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, any people involved with that, or is it just you and the computer? <laughs> just you and the computer, all right, okay, all right, yes? Oh, when people don't accommodate what you want to do. <laughs> Maybe we should talk more about this. Uh, so, yeah, but no, we can relate, right? I mean, we have a certain time, we have schedules, and we have to be places, and when delays come, it's tough for us to be patient, right? Where else? Yes? Pet peeves. My pet peeve is pet peeves. Oh, you, your pet peeve is pet peeves. So you're, you're impatient when people have pet peeves, and that's your pet peeve? Yes. There's a, there's a problem there, and that is that... You have a problem with yourself, so, uh, but, 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 yeah, and that's part of it, because we don't often see our own faults, and we see the faults of others. Let's talk to some, yeah, yes, Rich. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. People on the road. So, somebody, sometimes people get impatient with people on the road. That's right. It's, it's like, uh, well, we have a whole road rage, Right. But it's this idea, I mean, how many of you were swooped on this morning, right? Jade wasn't here, so there wasn't so much swooping this morning. But, um, 
But uh, yeah, we, we, we can be very impatient with other people. And, and really, um, you know, that anger, you know, anger itself is not necessarily a sin. Christ was angry. There's a righteous indignation. I've never experienced it. Uh, you know, when people cut me off on the freeway, I'm not thinking, oh, God's glory has just been tarnished. Right? I'm thinking, hey, this is my lane, and this is me, and this is my speed, and there's merge, and, you know, it's, it's not happening, and dangerous, and my family, and it's all about me. You see? So we're thinking about ourselves when, we're, when, when we start to lose our patience. How about um, anybody ever switch a cell phone carrier? <laughs> how does that work? I was talking to someone last night here in Steadfast. Well, visiting Steadfast from Texas. But anyways, six months they've been trying to sort out an issue. Six months. And uh, it's, it's just like, who's got time to, to finally cash in on those free vouchers? It just, it's just like, it just seems like, ah. Well, when we find this word... And I was fascinated by this word this week, and I decided what I did. The word macrothumia, I decided to look it up in every New Testament passage, both um, the, the, the verb form, the noun form, adverb, adjective. I wanted to look up this word every time it's used, and I looked through every one of them. I went through every one of them, and I started to notice that some of them were similar, so I started to categorize them in different areas, and I came up with five motivations to help us be more patient. So this is what we're looking at. We're just looking at this one word and this idea of being patient. And the scripture not only tells us to be patient, but it gives us motivations for it. And so I'm going to, this is where we're going to spend our time this morning, is five motivations for patience. Keep in mind that the number one context we find in scripture with patience is with other people specifically in the body of Christ. So I don't know how this will help you with the computer, but I know, that, uh, I know that primarily Paul's concerned here and throughout the New Testament we find in the church we are to love one another by demonstrating patience. And so five motivations for patience. We've talked about some funny ones so far, but this is real life. And there are people who are being patient in Difficult marriages are being patient with difficult life circumstances and diseases and all kinds of things. We are, we, we are having to exercise patience, broken relationships. And so um, this is going to be challenging for us. We need motivation. And so the first motivation is this. One motivation is that we desire others to be patient. It's our desire that others be patient. We tell people, patience is a virtue. Next time you say that, recognize that you're saying that to someone because you want them to be patient. Matthew 18, 26 and through 29 illustrates this. In Matthew 18, 26, that familiar uh, picture story about the unmerciful servant Matthew 18, 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything, right? It was impossible. He owed the king a, a, a debt he could never pay. It was so large. 
And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. So we learn there that this idea that we plead for others to be patient with us And yet, if we're unwilling to be patient with others, we are demonstrating a lack of mercy. We are unmerciful. It's hypocritical. And so we must realize that we encourage others to be patient. In the first century, I read this week that patience was not a virtue. It wasn't until the the third in the Greek culture. It wasn't until more like the third or fourth century that we found this becoming more popular. But, and yet Paul, in Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through 3, urged Agrippa to be patient with him. Uh, even though it wouldn't have been... Vengeance and, and harshness was prized among the Romans and those in the Greco-Roman world. But in Acts 26, 1 through 3, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so Paul even was asking someone who that wasn't something in their culture that they would normally prize to be patient with him. So we desire for others to be patient. That should be a motivation for us to be patient. Let's take a look at a second motivation. A second motivation is patience is exemplified in faithful believers. It is exemplified in faithful believers. When you read about faithful believers, it's often said that they were patient. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1, Paul writes... To the Corinthian church, again, at a later time than here we are in 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians 6.1, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He was urging those in the, in the Corinthian church who were not yet saved to listen and be saved, that the day of the Lord, a day of salvation was there, so be saved. And he was also urging believers who were already saved, but who lacked in their sanctification, who were not living like Christians, to actually not having received the truth in vain, to live like they should be living. And so in verse 3, he describes that of 2 Corinthians 6, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. And so there's this picture that faithful people are patient, even in the midst of severe persecution, suffering. Paul prayed that the Colossian believers would exemplify patience. He says in Colossians 1.9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, 
we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So we have in verse 11 there of Colossians 1 this idea that you might be here prayer, that you might be strengthened and steadfast and patient. James urged his readers to be patient, and he used Old Testament faithful men as examples. In um, James 5, 9, it says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. This is this idea of in the body of Christ, there's this complaint about, oh, he did this, he's like that, she's like this, whatever, this bickering. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. An example, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. And you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So he brings up the prophets and as well as Job. He talks about, you know, the prophets. In Matthew 23, verse 31, Jesus had taught that uh, Israel had murdered the prophets, that they were not patient with the prophets, but the prophets themselves were patient. Even Stephen, the first martyr, was killed because of Christ. Elijah in the Old Testament was persecuted by evil King Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. Um, Jeremiah endured persecution spanning over five decades, known as the weeping prophet, but he was faithful and he was patient. Daniel remained faithful in spite of being ripped from his family and his homeland and put into a new land and literally thrown to the lions. Hosea was faithful in the midst of what was arguably the most heartbreaking marriage in history. John the Baptist was beheaded, Matthew 14. And, of course, Job, who Satan was permitted to sift through his life and rip away everything that brought him earthly joy. And yet in Job 122, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. It's interesting in James 5, 9 that juxtaposed to patience is not complaining. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. In verse 10 of James 5, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. So one of the cures for complaining is patience. If you find that you're complaining, ask yourself, are you exercising patience? In 2 Timothy, Paul reminded Timothy of his own example of patience to encourage him to live godly in the midst of persecution. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 14, he says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. 
And of course, we know that when we speak about faithfulness and those who are examples, those who are examples of faithfulness are filled with the Spirit, are living as the Spirit would have them live, are obedient to doing what the Spirit would have them do. And because of that, they have the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we have as a motivation that we, de- we desire others to be patient. Uh, it's exemplified by believers who are faithful. And then thirdly, it's a command for believers. If you can't think of a reason to be patient, Just think about the number of times in Scripture you find that Christians are commanded to be patient. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That's kind of an all-inclusive statement there. It doesn't stop, be patient. It says, be patient with everyone. James 5, 7, Therefore, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. These are imperatives. Be patient, two of them in James 5, 7, and 8. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. That big shift in the book of Ephesians where the first three chapters are about all the blessings you have in Christ. The second three chapters, verses chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, are all about now living in a manner worthy of the calling. And it says, Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The church should be a place where people come and they say, I can't believe how much they love one another. And how are they going to see the love that these patients, these, these people are exceedingly patient with one another, tolerating one another in love to a degree that you don't see in the world. Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Even preachers are to be admonished to be patient. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, and instruction. So in all that we're doing, as you walk glorifying Christ, after all he's given you and blessed you with, you are called and instructed, commanded to be patient. It should be one of your defining characteristics. Five motivations. We've seen we desire for others to be patient. It's exemplified in faithful believers. It's a command for believers. A fourth one is interesting. Patience is tied to a future promise. Patience is tied to a future promise. We have an example of Abraham and a promise. 
mentioned in Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 15. I'll, I'll look at that first, and then we'll look at another passage. But in Hebrews 6, verse 11, it says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the the writer of Hebrews, the emphasis here is that salvation has never been through obedience to the law. You cannot be good enough to be saved. We are all sinners. And the writer of Hebrews is making it clear, speaking to Jews now to focus on the new covenant, but reminds them that even in the old covenant, they were not saved by works. And although there's obedience, obedience is not what saves. It's faith that saves, and it's always been that. And obedience is just a reflection of genuine faith. And so since Abraham is the father of faith, he says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. It's another key thing for the author of Hebrews. He wants you to know that God made this promise to Abraham and he ratified it or he even provided both parts of the deal, it was, it, was, it was all God making the promise, and God, God would fulfill it. And so he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So the picture here is Abraham was believed God and waited patiently. Um, he believed God because what had God promised? Well, he had promised in Genesis 12, uh, land, seed, and blessing. He, he, he promised that Abraham would be given a new land and his descendants there long after. He promised that he would have an heir, which Abraham had no children. He would have a son and many sons after that, multitudes and that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. That's the promise. It's found there in Hebrews 6, verse 14. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. All the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. That was part of the promise. It was one of redemption for a lost world through Abraham. And Abraham believed 2,000 years before Christ came, Abraham believed that God would somehow fulfill that promise, even if it meant to the extent that if it meant sacrificing his only heir, his son Isaac, somehow God would still make it to work. God would still raise him up. God somehow would still fulfill his promise because God can be trusted and he made this promise and he swore it on his own. And so having patiently waited. He obtained the promise. How did Abraham obtain the promise? Well, he was blessed by God with children and many grandchildren. In fact, there's an entire people group today that traced their genealogy to Abraham. And there's a spiritual group of people, including all believers, who can call him father because he's the father of faith and we live by faith. 
But literally, his genetic line, almost 15 million Jews in the world today because of God's promise. And he's not done with them. He has a future plan for them. God is faithful. So the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating that when Abraham believed and patiently waiting, there was a fulfillment to his promise, and it was completely dependent on God's word. But the New Testament associates patience with a future reward as well for believers. We find that in James 5, verse 7. It says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until... Actually, just, just turn there with me because in James 5, verse, verses 7 and 8, we find this word patient three times. Keep your fingers there in 1 Corinthians 13. James 5, verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's the imperative that we saw earlier. But we have this sentence in the middle here of James 5, 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Why does James compare being patient with a farmer? And yeah, I think we know that. I mean, everybody's, oh yeah, because he's going to get crops. Yeah, but what's the early and the latter rains? I, I understand it's much better after living in Central Africa and seeing the, the subsistence farmer, the, the one who's out there, he's, he's relying on his own crops. And it's a, I mean, Palestine was a dry, arid climate in the, in, in the summertime. The, um, uh, the ground would get rock hard. And so you depended upon those those early rains to soften the ground so that you could till it and plant. And then you had to wait for those latter rains. And in Palestine, the early rains were, were March and April. Um, and the latter rains would come just before harvest in October, November. And man, you were dependent upon those latter rains, which are really going to give those crops that growth so that you can reap a harvest that was worth reaping. And if they didn't come... You were, you were done that year. If there was a drought or something like that, they were completely dependent on God. And the, the, the comparison in James 5, 7, notice it says, therefore be patient until what? The coming of the Lord. So for the farmer, the promise was that future crop. But for believers, the promise is that coming of the Lord. We can be patient right now because, because we don't have to take revenge on other people. We don't have to grab them by the neck and say, pay me back what you owe me. We don't have, we can be wronged again and again and again, knowing that one day Jesus Christ will return, he will judge the world, and everybody will receive a just judgment. We don't have to do it. So when people say, how can you be so patient when you've been treated so terribly? Because I'm called to be patient, and I believe with all my heart that my Lord will make it right. And I might not see it in my lifetime, but he knows about it. It's trust. And 
And we see that in James 5. Not only in verse 7, but also in verse 8. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. We have this idea of the coming of the Lord. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You can't even compare it. The suffering, no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult it is, any sufferings that anyone experiences on this earth, when they get, when the Lord comes and those who are believers, those who've repented of their sins and turned and trusted in him and have been cleansed of their sin because not of their own good works, because they believe on the perfect sacrifice of Christ who died on their behalf as their sacrifice and their substitute, lived a perfect life, never sinned, never had to die, allowed himself to be crucified so that he could be, pay the price for their sin so that they could live, so that you could be in heaven, in glory, with God, around his presence and his glory, which is far greater than you can imagine. It's so great that it doesn't even compare to any suffering, which means that nobody gets to heaven and says, yeah, I suppose all that was worth it. This is pretty good. It's so great that you don't even think about anything you went through down here. Mm. Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in this. It's why in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul called suffering momentary light affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So, Motivations for patience. We desire for others to be patient, especially with us. It's exemplified in believers who are faithful. It's a command for believers. It's tied to a future promise. And the fifth one is that God is patient. Now, this makes sense, right? God is love, love is patient. Therefore, ergo, God is patient. That's exactly right. The transitive property of equality you learned in math. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. God is love, love is patient, God is patient. And we have a number of verses that speak about his patience. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why hasn't he come back now? Because he has been patient. He's been patient for you to be born and for you to see your sin and your rebellion against him. And he's been patient for you to repent of it and turn to him because he desires that you would not perish, because he's patient. But one day he will come. Luke 18, 7. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? That is, will he, will he not have patience? Same word there, delay long, long delay, macrothumia. Romans 2, 4. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Aren't you grateful for his patience, which leads to kindness, which demonstrates kindness, which leads to repentance? Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patient vessels of wrath, patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's patient. First Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul recognizes his own sin and God's patience in his life. 1 Peter 3.2, who once were obedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He could have destroyed it all then, and yet he was patient. Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish. We read that earlier. 2 Peter 3, verses 14 to 15. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you. So since God is patient... We must be patient all the more. And as, a, as we think about God's characteristic of patience, we cannot isolate that and look at that and say he's only patient because God is also a God of justice and he is a God who is a God of mercy and he is immutable. He never changes. He is omnipotent. He has, is all-powerful. He is good. He's a good God. And yet, He is a sovereign God in absolute control. And we need to think of God with all of his attributes. And what that reminds us is that I I think that impatience is often directly related to a wrong understanding of who God is and what his purposes are and trusting in him, believing in him. Part of being a believer is that you should believe in every circumstance. And so the sovereignty of God, the fact that he's in control of all events that surround us, whether you're delayed or not delayed, whether you're on hold or not on hold, if God really truly causes all things to work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28, if God is really sovereign, good, and all-powerful, then we are foolish to think that we must teach someone a lesson for wasting our time. We get so wrapped up in our own timetable that we forget about who God is. I want to close with a story uh, from a book called The Tale of the Tardy Ox Cart. It's a book of sermon illustrations, probably not one you would buy uh, it's by Chuck Swindoll, who, was a, who is a masterful storyteller. He tells the story of a young boy and his father who owned a small piece of land that they farmed. 
Several times a year, they would load up their ox-drawn cart with vegetables and go into the nearest city to sell their produce. Other than farming, the boy and the father had very little in common. The young man was usually in a hurry and had a very short temper. The older man believed in taking it easy and living life one step at a time. One morning, they hitched up their ox to their loaded cart and headed to the city. The son figured that if they walked quickly and kept on going throughout the day and the night, they would make it to the market the next morning. So he kept on prodding the ox with a stick, urging it to get a move on. Take it easy, said the father. You will last longer. But the son said... If we get ahead of the others, we will have a better chance of getting good prices at the market. The father didn't reply. He just pulled his hat down over his eyes and fell asleep on the seat of the cart. But the son was irritated and couldn't wait to get to the city, so he kept goading the ox and refused to change the pace that he was walking. For hours, for miles, four hours and four miles later, down the road, they came to a little house where the father woke up and smiled and said, here's your uncle's place. Let's stop and say hello. Would this drive you crazy? (laughs) But we've lost an hour already, complained the son. Well, then a few more minutes won't matter, said the father. My brother and I live so close and see each other so seldom. The boy fidgeted and fumed while the father laughed and talked for nearly an hour. When they got back on the road, the father looked and he he took his turn leading the ox. And as they came to a fork in the road, the father led the ox to the right, and the son said, to the left is the shorter way. I know, replied the old man, but this way is much prettier. Have you no respect for time? The young man asked impatiently. Oh, I respect it very much, said the father. That is why I like to use it to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to its fullest. The journey took them past graceful meadows, wildflowers, a rippling stream. The whole time, the sun was just churning within. He was steaming with anxiety. That evening, they found themselves in a beautiful garden. The father smelled the beautiful aroma, listening to the bubbling brook, and said, let's sleep here tonight. This is the last trip I'm taking with you, snapped the sun. You are more interested in watching sunsets and smelling flowers than in making money. Why, that's the nicest thing you've said to me in a long time, said the father. (laughs) The boy was restless all night, and early in the morning, he woke his father to carry on their journey. But it wasn't too far down the road, they came upon another farmer whose cart had fallen in a ditch. The son was ready to explode when the father whispered, let's give this stranger a hand. It's almost eight o'clock, and the time they got their cart out of the ditch, by the time they got their cart out of the ditch, And back on the road, suddenly they saw a huge flash across the sky in what sounded like thunder. The old man said, looks like big rain in the city. If we hurried, grumbled the boy, we would almost be sold out by now if we had hurried. Take it easy. You'll last longer and you'll enjoy life so much more, counseled the kind old gentleman. It was later, by by the time that they finally got to the hill overlooking the city. They stopped and stared and looked down at it for a long time. Neither one of them said a word. Finally, the young man put his hand on his father's shoulder and said, I see what you mean, Dad. They turned their cart around and began to roll slowly from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. That is, before it was completely destroyed by an atom bomb at the end of World War II. The day 
when an ox cart was late for the market. It's a story. It's not a perfect story, but it's an illustration of someone who had priorities and realized that, you know, being impatient, especially when you're young, is not really wise because it doesn't trust in a God who is control of everything. He is sovereign. He is good. He knows what he's doing. His ways are perfect, Deuteronomy 32. And all his ways are just. So may you, when you are struggling with patience, remember that your desire is for others to be patient with you, that it's exemplified in faithful believers. It's a command for believers. It's tied to a future promise. And we can be grateful that God is patient. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for opportunity to look at your word and be reminded of how we see things in a myopic way. We see things so narrowly and just a little bit of it, and you see the big picture. You see it from a perspective that we can never have because you're above all. And so we pray, thy will be done. For those of us who've already given our lives to you, may we be reminded this morning that our lives are completely yours. Use them however, whenever, to what extent for your glory. And for those who hear this message who do not know you, may this day they see that they are thinking worldly and not from a godly perspective, that they would repent of their sins and see that their only hope is trusting in you. So we commit this to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.